The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, a podcast dedicated to weekly TV shop reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who sometimes makes drunk phone calls to Stephen Hawking to talk about Game of Thrones. My co-host... Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on the long-awaited season premiere of Game of Thrones. Yes. Once Upon a Time with Dan and Andy, the following with special guests Bill and Nico and Glee in our sitcom section including Community and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on the season finale of Justified, The Americans, a season one review of Sci-Fi's Helix, a watch it or not of both AMC's Turn and Silicon Valley, and our Grimm section, and maybe even a few more things. But before we get into all of that, we've got everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. Valar Morgalis, HBO renews Game of Thrones for season 5 and 6. Yes. Apparently, HBO likes Games of Thrones. Who would have known? I don't know. <laughs> After the series season 4 premiere set a ratings record on Sunday and became yes. the most watched episode of an HBO program since the series finale of The Sopranos. And after just three days after Game of Thrones returned for season 4, the show got a big two-season renewal for both season 5 and 6. HBO nice. notes that the season 4 premiere of Game of Thrones was watched by an average of 6.6 .6 million viewers, making it their most watched program since the finale of The Sopranos in 2007, though it is yet to match the 11.9 million viewers that that event garnered. Of course, those numbers do not take into account the millions of viewers that pirated the show once again this season, as it remains the most pirated TV show of all time. Executive producers and showrunners Weiss and Benoff have said they see Game of Thrones lasting around seven or eight seasons total. This renewal is obviously taking us ever closer to that finish line, which seems more and more likely to occur before the books are wrapped up. Oops. Though Weiss and Benoff have revealed George R.R. R. Martin has told them how the books will end. I hope that's not the case because I prefer, as I've said before, to read the story before seeing it on TV or film. Anyway, good news that two more seasons are guaranteed for this great series. Good right, George Wright. Yeah. Oh, there was that internet video where they're like, right like the wind. Yes, because... That's what needs to happen, and uh, great news for the show. Yep. I thought this was going to happen. Yeah, it's not surprising. This is the least surprising news out all week. Right. The Game of Thrones premiere crashes HBO Go. This is great. As some of you might have discovered, HBO's online streaming service, HBO Go, suffered some problems during the season four premiere of Game of Thrones last week. Multiple viewers struggled to watch the premiere online due to terrible loading times or the somewhat threatening message, Fatal Error, failed to load the service error definitions. At least the service's official Twitter account had a sense of humor about it, apologizing to fans in a manner that is very much uh, on brand. Okay. Having trouble accessing 
Passing at HBO Go, Send a Raven at Game of Thrones will be available soon on HBO On Demand with some cable providers. And, looks like there's trouble in the realm. Apologies for the inconvenience. We'll be providing updates, so please stay tuned. Hashtag Game of Thrones. The service eventually returned to full strength, but viewers affected were encouraged to watch the replay on HBO at 11pm Eastern. Let this be a lesson for next week. Watch it on HBO and on regular HBO and don't expect HBO Go to be able to handle the same time viewing. It's just a thought. It's it's perfect to watch if you missed it and need to go back hours later or the next day, whatever. Yeah. That's going to work fine. But if you're trying to watch on HBO Go, just go home and watch it on TV because it's not going to work. Well, I know a lot of other people use people they know as accounts yeah. to get out HBO Go. Yep. So I think that's what happened. Yeah. Not only were all of the subscribers of HBO trying to watch Game of Thrones, all of their friends were also, like you said, trying to sneak on <laughs> and watch it. Well, I, I think this is the first time I've heard of a TV show viewing doings. Well, actually, the last week it happened, or not last week, three weeks ago with the True Detective finale was the first time that the system crashed. Crashed okay. from from excitement and overuse. Cool. So there there is a precedent for it, but yeah, it's only the second time it's happened. But no other networks had this problem. Well, no other network has as robust and right. well used system as that, except maybe Hulu Hulu Plus. Right, because they're almost a bigger entity. Oh, they definitely are. Yeah. yeah. TNT officially orders the Librarian series. I'm excited about this, too. Yeah, TNT has announced that it's turning the Librarian, its hit TV movie franchise that starred ER and Falling Skies' Noah Wiley, as Flynn Carson, the sworn protector of the world's mythical treasures, into a new series called The Librarians. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, this was a possibility, and now it is official. Wiley is set to executive produce the series along with Dean Devlin from The Librarian movie series and Leverage, and John John Rogers from Le- Leverage as well. Wiley will also recur on the show as Flynn while still starring as the lead on cool. TNT's summer series Falling Skies. With both shows being on TNT, scheduling shouldn't be an issue. So who are the new librarians? Rebecca Romaine from X-Men and King and Maxwell. Okay. Christian Kane from Leverage and Angel. Lindy Booth from Dawn of the Dead, The Philanthropist, and Kick-Ass 2. Yes. And John Kim from Neighbors and the Pacific will star as the new artifact protectors. And with Emmy winner John Larroquette, one of Dan's favorites, from Night yes. Court, slated to play their reluctant caretaker. Bob Newhart and Jane Curtin will be recurring, Go reprising like their too. previous roles from the library franchise that casting is amazing i love lindy booth of course love christian kane and the fact that they are getting noah wiley bob newhart and jane Curtin all back as recurring cast is unbelievable matt frewer who recently worked with wiley on falling skies will also recur as the show's villain the series is expected to launch late 2014 i cannot wait nice and those for those interested in the premise of the series follow the link in the acc for a four paragraph synopsis John Kim, who does he play on The Neighbors? Ooh, that's a good question that I don't know. Let me check that out real quick. Is he the main weirdo guy? He, I believe, is... It looks like he's one of the kids. Okay. Yeah. Okay, interesting. I don't know. So they have a kid a part of the team. That's kind of wild. Yes. Yes. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. I like it. Well, he looks to be, I don't know how old. Maybe late teens. Okay. So, yeah. Cool, though. Could be interesting, though. Yeah. 
Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Kobe Smulders to return. Kobe Smulders will reprise her role as Maria Hill on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. later this month. But when Maria returns, she won't exactly be seeing eye-to-eye with her old buddy Coulson. If you've seen Cap 2 and want more details, follow the link in the ACC feed. Otherwise, don't, because it is spoiler-heavy. I'm glad this is happening. Yeah, that we had speculated a long time ago that we saw her coming to the series as soon as How I Met Your Mother was over, and that seems to be exactly what's happening. So, kudos to ex- us. Yeah, <laughs> but don't get too excited. She hasn't picked for guys a regular or reoccurring cast. No, yet. but I I would be highly suspect if she did not appear more frequently than than you know. Every once in a while. Especially for uh, season two. Yeah. And season two seems to be almost guaranteed now. It hasn't yes. been officially announced, but it is very... Joss Whedon's already started talking about what season two is going to look like. So he's very confident. It just needs the official word from ABC. I don't know if the ratings have shown it, but the story has. Yes. And I think there's enough following to keep it going. Especially with what happened with Cap 2 and how it's supposed to feed right into the story. And and from all I've heard, I haven't had actually caught this week's episode. It does feed into that. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that, to watch last week's episode and the rest of this season. Okay, there are also rumors that ratings might have been down for people not wanting to get spoiled. So mm-hmm. there's that. Defiance books Linda Hamilton for Season 2. A mysterious new resident has big plans to shake up Defiance in Season 2. TV vet Linda Hamilton will guest star in the second season of the sci-fi drama as Pilar McCrawley, the estranged wife of Graham Greene's Rafe. Executive producer Kevin Murphy promises Hamilton's character will simultaneously make you cry and scare the crap out of you. Defiance's second season premieres June 19th at 8, 7 central on Sci-Fi. We'll see how that goes. Nathan Fillon teases possible Guardians of the Galaxy role. Did Nathan Fillon just reveal his surprise role in the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy? Probably not, but it's hard to dismiss something this sensationally geeky. Fillon was fielding questions at the St. Louis Comic Con's Firefly panel when one particularly bold questioner asked him about his history with Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn. Fillon starred in Gunn's breakout movie Slither and wore a ridiculous costume as the Holy Avenger in Super. Given his relationship with Gunn and Avengers 2 director Joss Whedon, this fan asked Fillon, were you wanting to get a part in Guardians of the Galaxy? Villain viciously responded, wanting to or maybe did. After the crowd calmed down, he continued cryptically, I'm just saying, maybe, maybe there'll be a surprise. Maybe check the credits after the movie when you watch it, at which point the entire auditorium went bananas. If you'd like to see the entire panel, check out the link in the ACC feed, thanks to IGN. I think Nathan comes in around somewhere around minute 28. Well, you know, that's not the only TV character who's popped up in Marvel Funk, if it does happen. Right. So I wouldn't put it past him. First Girl Meets World trailer. It's been over a year since Girl Meets World was formally announced, and this week, Disney Channel released an official teaser trailer for the highly anticipated Boy Meets World spinoff. Check out the video in the link for the first look at the parents, Corey and Topanga Matthews, and their daughter, Riley. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me too. I, I think it looks really good. Yep. Stephen Colbert announced as David Letterman's replacement. Well, that was quick. Yeah. Just a week after David Letterman revealed he was retiring next year, CBS has announced his replacement, and it's Stephen Colbert. In the past week, Colbert was said to be the frontrunner for the job. He has signed a five-year deal with CBS for the new series, which will debut at some point in 2015 after Letterman determines exactly when the late show with David Letterman will conclude. As for Colbert himself, he said in a press release, simply being a guest on David Letterman's show has been a highlight of my career. 
I never dreamed that I would follow in his footsteps, though everyone in Late Night follows Dave's lead. Obviously, this announcement means the end of the Colbert rapport, though it remains to be seen when exactly that series will wrap up. Stephen Colbert did say that when the Colbert Report ends, he will be retiring his character of Stephen Colbert and returning to himself to host the show and not in the right-wing fanatic he plays currently on his show. I think this is a good choice. I'm just a little surprised that Craig Ferguson was not in this in serious contention for the job. But then again, maybe he likes being exactly where he is. I sure know I do. Regardless, this is a good move for CBS. Guess it very quickly. A lot of people are very quickly opposed to Stephen Colbert doing this because of the Colbert Report. Kind of glad he specified that's a character he plays. That's not himself. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. That's right. That is what makes the Colbert Report so amazing is that he stays in character and has stayed in character the entire run of that series. But that's not going to work for a talk show. And I want people to be very clear. That that's not what they're going to get. Well, it's not going to work for a network right. talk show because his is essentially a talk show. But right, yeah, it's not going to work for a network yeah. late night show because it, it just isn't the right format. And Stephen Colbert, the actual person, is is hilarious and can yes. can, can do it without needing the character, and that's going to be very evident very quickly. Yeah, and, and again, you and I get that that's a parody. There are other people that don't. Yeah, I understand that. I don't understand that, so I just don't be opposed to him doing this because. He could he could do talk show host stuff just as well as Letterman or Kimmel or any of those guys without having to play this character. Yep. So give it a shot because I'm looking forward to it. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right. So you're ready to get out to the main event? Indeed. Something we've been waiting for for a while. God, I think it didn't fail to disappoint. And that's the Game of Thrones episode, Two Swords. Tyrion welcomes a guest to King's Landing. At Castle Black, Jon Snow finds himself unwelcome. Danny is pointed to Marine, the mother of all slave cities. Arya runs into an old friend. Game of Thrones is back. And so is Jamie at King's Landing, where he was belittled by both his father and sister on his ability to be a King's Guardsman. A lover, thanks to only having one hand. I loved how Jamie played off all these insults with witty comebacks. Got that they also got under his skin just enough to seek counsel for Brienne. Continuing one of my favorite friendships forged during last season. God, I'm hoping Brienne using their oath to Caitlin Stark of protecting her daughters because it means of motivating Jamie will lead to a team-up between Jamie and Tyrion since protecting Stanza because in both of their interests. Nico, is this something worth me hoping for? Okay, what were your observations about Jamie Handel, his family's opinions about him, continuing to carry on despite losing a hand? Dan, these two do indeed have a common goal of protecting Sansa, especially from Joffrey. But I think we shall see that they may differ of opinion how on best to do that and go about that task. Brienne and Jamie are one of the best pairings to come out of last season, and their unlikely bond and friendship makes their story all the more interesting as we go forward. And we will see it even more this season. As for Jamie and his family, I loved seeing him stand up to Tywin as he is really the only one that seems able to do so at this point. Jamie won't be the last to stand up to him, but he was the first. And I liked it because it showed how much Jamie has changed and yet how much he is still the same cocky, self-sure fighter we knew early on. So yeah, I, I liked seeing him stand up for himself, even though he's getting treated like crap from his family. 
Well, yeah, I'm glad they kept the cockiness in him for this certain situation. Oh, yeah. It makes him likable with what happened to him, even though I hated him early on. Oh, you're supposed to hate him. Yes. And I think you're supposed to start to like him later in the story. He's well, still an arrogant ass. Don't yeah. get me wrong. But you're supposed to start seeing that there's more to him than just that. But so is Tyrion. Oh, you're supposed to like Tyrion from the beginning. Just right. love his wit and love all of that. And where his story goes, very interesting. We'll get to that a little bit later. Well, and, and Jamie's becoming more like him. We're seeing those similarities come out. Right. The one thing I think they missed in this episode was the reconnection of Tyrion and Jamie, because right. Tyrion loves his brother, absolutely loves his brother, and Jamie is one of the few people that absolutely loves Tyrion. So seeing that reunion was, I think, missed, but I think for the reason that you pointed out, because the others were belittling him, yeah. and Tyrion would have been different. So I think maybe we'll see that in this coming episode. I agree with that. That's the interesting thing about this show. If they don't get to it in the first episode, they'll get to it in the next one. Right. I mean, they, they cover their bases very well in this show. Yeah, they are taking a vastly expansive story that even the books jump back in time and stuff like that. So they're taking that and making a cohesive narrative that makes linear sense. Right. <laughs> and that's tough to do, and they've done an excellent job. We just have to be patient for it sometimes. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Good. Speaking of Tyrion, his time at King's Landing kind of has begun to start weighing on him. Guys, yeah, Cersei wants him done. He doesn't really know how to help stop the start. His mistress is frustrated. Because now word has gotten out that he's kind of cheating on his wife. Plus, to top that off, he inherited the enemy of a prince who hates Tywin Lannister more than I do for killing his sister. Nico, is this the season where the smooth-talking Tyrion was facing his toughest trials? Yeah. God, is the prince adored somehow related to Danny? Also, does he have a connection to her story? I wish I could say Tyrion will face his toughest trials in this season. Season, but that is saved oh for gosh. a later date and further along in our story. What, more is, what is more complicated? <laughs> I don't want to spoil anything. Oh but my. this will be an interesting and difficult season for Tyrion in King's Landing for sure, where he will face many new challenges. So you're absolutely right to be feeling that way. Just know that it's not the most challenging thing he will face. Oh my gosh. So now the Prince of Dorne, Oberon, he's the brother of the wife of Danny's oldest brother, Rhaegar Targaryen. Her name was Elia Martell, and the Martells are the oh. ruling family of Dorne. Right. So they would be in-laws. Okay. As for Oberon and Danny's stories intertwining, no, they don't have a connection besides the murder of Elia Martell and her two kids, plus the death of Danny's brother, Rhaegar, led to her claim to the throne. Oberon's story is one of vengeance, while Danny's right. is one of restoring her rightful throne. So they don't really have a connection beyond that. Okay. Guy was just trying to keep track of the family tree there. Yeah. No, you're you were it's right to make that <laughs> you were right to make that connection because his sister was the queen at the time of Jamie's betrayal. Okay. And then when Jamie killed the Mad King, she and her kids were executed right. on the orders of Tywin, but by the mountain. Okay. Okay, really, Tywin's the bad guy in this whole thing. Yes. A little bit. Yep. Because nothing the mountain does is not on the orders of Tywin Lannister. Right. Well, and that's what Oberon said in this episode. Well, now we're seeing Jaime and uh, Tyrion feel guilty about some of the things he did. Or say, no, that wasn't me, that was my dad. Yeah, Don't exactly. mess with me. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Good chapter to Tyrion in this episode, so hopefully he doesn't pay a price. We're well, you know, that. both Oberon and Tyrion have really quick wits, and they're, they have... Yes. 
they have sharp tongues and they actually except for this this killing of his sister Elia Martel they probably would have been friends right they, they the, the Oberon's nickname is the Red Viper so he is quick-witted he's dangerous he's deadly he is Tyrion but fully able-bodied that's why he's a great nemesis to have yeah it's gonna be good stuff seeing that go on even though there's a bigger challenge you have yeah and, uh, kind of going back to Danny a little bit with the, the whole family tree thing. It appears that the pressure of being queen is going to start weighing on her. Guess her dragons are outgrowing the ability to control them. Acting as almost kind of an allegory to Danny's army, which has grown tremendously. At the same time, she's also fighting off male suitors. Got both Grey Worm. Got a new actor playing Daddario. Battled over Danny's affections. Can I hope that doesn't lead to Daddario? taking advantage of her, even though Danny did a great job of holding her own in this episode. Nico, do you share my suspiciousness of Dario? Got our characters like Sir Jorah going to get involved in this battle of suitors? Also, does this mark the beginning of some of the toughest trials Danny will have to face? We don't have to worry about Grey Worm trying to win Danny's affections because he's an unsullied, and they are not interested in such things. He merely <laughs> wants the honor of being her protector and the leader of the unsullied. As for Dario, he wants to better for sure. Yes. That will definitely lead to friction between him and Ser Jorah, who we all know is in love with Daenerys. Yes. Yeah. Mirren will most certainly be Danny's most challenging and toughest trials, and will sideline her for months and maybe years from her path towards regaining the Iron Throne. It will cost her much and force her to make many tough decisions. We shall see her struggle to escape her trials at Mirren unscathed, and I won't give any hints as to what happens there, but it will change the tide of her entire story. So keep an eye on this story for where you think things go and when they change, because you will see them change. But this isn't her biggest challenge, is it? <laughs> well, I, I don't know, because oh, okay. I, I can't say, and we, then I don't it. know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I'm excited to see where this story's going to go, but I also hate it for sidetracking her, because I want to see her get to King's Landing and react with all these people. Yeah, actually, her time in Mirren is one of my least favorite parts of the oh. book. It's necessary, absolutely necessary for her evolution as a leader. But the struggle and it takes up an entire book and a half and for her story or two books, actually, for her story. And I'm not the biggest fan of it. I think finally at the end of book five, things are starting to get wrapped up there. And uh, maybe in six, when it finally comes out, we'll start seeing some forward progress after Mirren, but... So we've I, got I can't... two more seasons of this. Well, yeah, yes and no. It depends on how fast they burn through okay. Mirren and all of that in the, in the TV show, because there's a lot of inner monologue that won't okay. necessarily need to be that much screen time, you know, or a okay. lot of back-end deals that can be shown fairly quickly, but, you know, it takes 30 pages to describe. Okay. So it could go much quicker, except for that they can't get too far along before other things in right. other stories catch up. Because, I mean, she's one of my favorite characters, so I'm like, oh, it's going to go slow for her? Bummer. Slow in the sense of action and dragons and, right. you know, what has made Daenerys' story so much fun in the first two seasons 
and then uh, last season as well, really getting, you know, to see those dragons yes. was everybody got really pumped up and now she's going to stall out at Mirren and it's going to become more about being a queen and what that entails and where they go from there and how to learn to be a queen that will be able to fight in King's Landing and rule in King's Landing. So those are all important things that she needs to learn. Right. Just it gets a little tedious for the viewer and well, reader. And maybe they'll take some liberties with Tina Schmidt to make it more exciting. That is definitely a possibility. And as you saw in, in this episode, she does have to actually still take the city. So there's going to be a, a really right. awesome battle. We saw in the season four promos that they're going to use the Unsullied. They're going to have uh, trebuchets and fighting and trying to breach the wall. Right. And then we have some good stuff coming from Ser Jorah in this battle. So good things to look forward to before we get tied down in Mirren. Cool. Next up here on the episode was Hugrat, who was taking the heat from her fellow wildlings about butting John Snowcomb. But then they were interrupted by another tribe called the Fens. And I like knowing that a group like this is out there because with John becoming so chummy with the wildlings last season, I was beginning to sympathize with them. But after seeing a more cannibalistic tribe like the Fens, I understand why the Night's Watch wants to wipe them out. Nico, am I correct in thinking there are several different wildling tribes who are after different goals? Yes and no, Dan. There are indeed many different wildling tribes, and they usually have many different goals and are more likely to kill each other than work together, as was said by the gold cloak turned Night's Watch guy on Jon Snow's Inquisition board, right. Janna Slint. However, Mance Raider was able to unite all the wildling tribes under a single cause and get them to work together. So usually you would be correct, but at the moment they are of a single purpose. Fight the crows to get south of the wall before winter comes for good and the White Walkers invade. Could just some groups are more vicious than others. Yes, yes. And and normally the Fens and the different wildlings are at odds. And, you know, obviously cannibals, they would be trying to eat each other. Or right. he, the Fens would be trying to eat other wildlings sometimes. Or, you know, that definitely the crows. Now, they're not entirely cannibalistic. They right. do eat their vanquished enemies. Okay. That it, but they don't. As far as I remember, they don't go out and hunt other humans just for those. Well, I, and I think if they did that, it wouldn't make sense for them to be combining forces. Right. There's there's, the group. there's not enough humans above the wall yeah. to be, you know, but when they when they defeat a, another wildling tribe that maybe was encroaching on their area or something like that, they will eat them. Right. I think it's a power thing, so, like, th yeah. they take on their essence yeah, that makes sense. I, I just like that there were some groups that kind of do deserve to be taken out or battled or feared. Yeah, and you're supposed to you're supposed to sympathize with some of the wildlings, right. and you're supposed to sympathize with Mance Raider. He makes a good argument in last season. Yeah. So John actually, I think, has more sympathy for them than anyone else in the Night's Watch. Because he saw them for being yeah. human, you know, and so like that's that's definitely important. But when it comes to defending the wall, he will still do his duty. Great, and I thought this did a good job of kind of showing both sides of the argument. Very much so. Yeah. Okay, going into the Night's Watch, they let Jon Snow off the hook for taking in with the wildlings. By Jon telling the truth, got everything that happened. Kind of assuming they viewed Jon as a valuable resource since he's really the only one that kind of knows what the wildlife forces look like on the other side of the wall. Nico, is my assumption on this correct? 
Uh, once again, Dan, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> they let him go because you are correct that he told the truth and was and has important intel on the wildlings, but also because Maester Agemon had enough sense to keep the panel from right. killing Snow. The gold cloak turned brother of the Night's Watch, Janna Slynth, hates Snow because he is Ned Stark's bastard son, and he fears Jon Snow for his part in Ned Stark's downfall. Right. Janna Slynth betrayed Ned and killed all his men in the throne room, and fears that Jon Snow will seek retribution. That is why Janice wanted John killed here so that John could not seek that revenge for his father's death. But John's knowledge of the wildlings and his understanding of their customs is an asset to the Night's Watch, and that is why the Maester was able to persuade the others not to hang Jon Snow, even though Janice Slynth and his cronies were very much trying to get that done. Right, but I don't know if really John is out for revenge. Is he? They they talk a little bit about it, and we see from because Jon Snow is a point of view character in the novels, right. and so we actually get some insight and some inner monologue about him. And he is torn because now he is a because Janice Slynth is a brother, a brother knight, and right. he knows that he can't do anything about it. He has to leave his family behind when he takes his right. oath to be a brother of the Night's Watch. So he actually takes that pretty serious. But Janice Slynth right. thinks. Because right. he he doesn't take his oath to the right, to the exactly. Night's Watch serious at all, so he he only uses that oath as a way to entrap other men. Right. Well, I almost feel like that the the revenge thing is something that should almost be given to someone like Bran, like Ned's pure blood son. Well, I think we I think we get too focused on bastard sons and trueborn sons. Yeah. They're still sons, right. and they love their father, right. and especially Jon Snow, who was raised as True. his son. He wasn't, you know, discarded and just vaguely knows that Ned Stark was his father. Ned raised him as his own, treated him as as his son. Yes, he doesn't have the title of being his trueborn son, but he was raised as if he was. Yeah, okay. And kind of going on that note, I really liked how Sam tried to help John through his interesting way of mourning the deaths that took place at the Red Wedding, especially regarding John's jealousy of Rob. Nika, are you hoping we'll get more of this throughout the season? Will it form a brotherly relationship between John and Sam? Dan, that's already the case with these right. two. They are brothers already. And the actions of Sam later in this season will show just how much he cares for Jon Snow, and Jon Snow eventually repays that love with an assignment for Sam that suits him very well. I can't get into details because they are major plot points for book four and five, but just a taste to answer your question. Okay, I just, I like them interacting. It's good stuff and I've missed it throughout last season. We are going to see at the end of this season a chance for these two to be very important together. Cool. So it's going to be good stuff. Kind of excited about that. Okay, continuing on with the rest of the Stark family. Sansa's role in this episode was mainly to play a part in the progression of Tyrion's story, but she did get one scene to herself. Where the guardsman who was made in Chester gave Stubbs a reason to keep going after losing her family and brother by asking her to wear his mother's dress. Nika, did you feel that this scene marked the beginning of Stanza becoming an innocent female character who's on her way towards becoming empowered like Danny or her sister Arya? Yeah, this may be the start of that. There are things coming that will make you understand Sansa's importance to the overall story later, but suffice it to say that this scene with Sir Dantos was important. Yeah. Sir Dantos owes her his life and will be important in giving Sansa hers back, and we saw as much in this episode, figuratively, giving her a reason to live. Yeah, and we think, I think Sansa's on her way to be a, becoming a leader. Someone who could convince people, could get them to follow her. I think that's a long play 
okay. look at her, and that that's not a bad thing to look at. But there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen in between right. now and when she can start leading. And it's an interesting. This is the start of Sansa becoming interesting. Right. Up to this point, she's kind of just been having things done to her. Right. And now I think she's going to start taking some of that power, like you were talking, and actually make things happen. It was kind of like the loss of innocence, what was what going on with her for the first three seasons. Yes. Okay, now we've reached the point where it's going to turn around. Yeah, she's had some awful stuff happen to her. And yeah. finally, I think she's going to get to the point, her breaking point, where she has to start fighting back. Yeah, and I think she'll have some mentors in that. Yep. Yeah, I think that's coming. Are they going to continue some of those relationships we saw her forge last season with the Tyrells? So, yes, that okay. will be for the next couple episodes. We're going to see some of that. Okay. And then maybe some change. Uh-oh. <laughs> some different stuff is definitely coming. I don't know. We're going to see her and Tyrion's relationship evolve in Hopefully the next couple weeks. Well, you remember, Tyrion said that he would never force her, right. that he would hope that eventually she would willingly, but... Right. We'll see where that goes. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, finally catching up with Arya, that kind of led to the action-packed parties. Because she and the Hound connected with each other through getting into a barroom sword fight. And the Hound letting Arya take her vengeance upon the man who slaughtered one of her friends. Nika, why do you believe the Hound let Arya make her first kill? Was it to help her deal with the horror she witnessed at the Red Wedding? Or to release the killer she had inside. Also, was this moment an indicator that we might see Arya go down a dark path this season? Oh, if you only knew where Arya's story oh, no. was going, Dan, you would be super excited like I am about this scene and where it starts her on her path to the next thing. Ah, oh, I really love the Arya character in the books, and her story is just starting to get really good right now in the, sto- in the TV show. This week, she got to cross one name off that prayer kill list she's been keeping as she killed Paul. Oliver in the show, but actually she killed the tickler in the books, and the hound killed Oliver in the books, but not a big deal. It it got her needle back, and that was the important thing for killing her friend. So yeah, this is a big scene in the sense that it starts her on a path to where she ends up in the books. Can I just imagine her like carrying her around the list, running around and telling people, Oliver, you have failed this kingdom. <laughs> yeah, so sh- remember that list, because it's important. So Arya's going to run around like a vigilante. That's kind of cool. I'm not discounting it. <laughs> it's definitely one of the, in the possibility of things. And, and to, to, to that point, her story is still evolving where I am in the books. So I have theories on where she's going, but even yet, I, I don't know. I don't know okay. because some big changes are coming. Big changes are coming. <laughs> all the stories. All the stories. Arya, Sansa, Joffrey, everything, everybody, Jamie, Brienne. So, so instead of winter is coming, changes are coming. Changes are coming. Sam, uh, John, all of that. There's going to be big changes this season. And you've just given me a better idea for the title of this podcast. Good song. So good stuff. Thank you for that, Joe. No problem. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what these changes are. You got me excited about Arya now. Got me fired up. Yeah, she's one of my favorite characters in the in the book. So absolutely, and I think Maze Williams is is amazing as and playing her. She's very demure and like yes. understated. And when we see where she's going, it's gonna make all the sense in the world. 
It's so good. Somebody else on the show deserves it up at some point. <laughs> well, I mean, if if you can only give one, then Peter Dinklage is is deserving of that. But one. he got one. He got it. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. each season he's getting better and better. So if he if he deserved it for the huh. first season, he deserves it for the second, the third, probably this fourth. It's yeah. gonna, you know, he's amazing. But the female actresses are great too. Oh yeah. I mean, you really got to give them credit. You got to give everybody credit on this. Yeah. It's not easy dialogue. It's not easy. Easy, just you know, stand there and read your lines. This is really well acted all across the board. Well, yeah, just dealing with the costumes, mm-hmm. some of the sets, the scenery being is in, challenging the film. Being actually out in the middle of winter, yes, on location. Yeah, they get to go back to a heated tent, but while they're out shooting for that hour or whatever, they're in freezing conditions. They are yeah. in winter conditions. So yeah, excellent. Stuff. And on the other side, when they're in Prague and different locations in Europe, they are in sweltering heat in those costumes. Yes. <laughs> Shooting in a swamp is still in a swamp. Yes. And with that, since there's always a lot of things to cover in every Game of Thrones season, I'm going to end all of our discussions for this season with me asking Nico the question. Is there any detail that I missed covering or will pertain to make part of the story later on that you want to talk about? Yeah, the whole discussion about the true war being that of the White Walkers and the need for the Onion Knight to help Stannis win the war beyond the wall was massively important. That was something we just kind of didn't talk about. I think it's going to be next week. Okay, as week. far as I am in the books, that still is not progressing fast enough, but winter is coming and maybe be faster in the show than in the books. Also, Gendry's escape seems to be important because they changed it from the books where the Onion Knight released a different bastard of Roberts to let him sail the Pentos, and Gendry remained with the Brotherhood Without Banners and was never actually captured. And that Brotherhood Without Banners, which is the guy who has been raised from the dead seven times, and I can't remember his name right now, and the priest Thoris. Uh, I'm not sure what Gendry's importance to the remainder of the story is at at this time, but I would suspect there is something important coming from this as well because in the books they still reference him and so why would they do that if his story wasn't important I think it eventually will maybe circle back to Arya's story at some point right. and that's about all I can think of at the moment I missed the Onion Knight this week I figured that in generally since they're all kind of connected yep. it's going to be this week's episode, episode two. I'm kind of glad they kind of cut this, that stuff out because too many storylines makes this show hard for us to review and sometimes too many plot lines the episode kind of makes this episode, makes episode kick a mind fart so I'm glad yeah. they kept it simple yeah. so we can keep track of it I think it's actually going to get pushed for a couple weeks. I mean, okay. it's probably going to be the same as this, where it's very small progression, only because I think with the king's wedding coming up and yeah. things of importance like that, those are going to be a focus of the second and third episode. Well, the wedding in itself could just be a full on its own episode. Yeah, they're going to cut to other stuff because yeah. being in that one place for the entire thing, they haven't done that for an entire episode. So I think they don't want to drop the ball on all the other storylines. But for people who haven't read the books, I'll tell you this, Nico, the word wedding <laughs> makes people a little nervous. Yeah, George R. R. Martin yeah. is kind of a jerk like that. <laughs> So uh, this this word wedding at King's Landing makes me go running scared, especially when the groom is a psychopath. Yeah, exactly. So, uh oh, I'm not going to make you answer the question if we should be scared or not, because that may ruin things. But it's a thought we all have in the back of our minds. Yeah, absolutely. God, that's our Game of Thrones section for the week. On that nerve wracking note. And now we're going to go on to bringing Andy into the party to talk about a Once Upon a Time episode called "It's Not Easy Being Green." 
With Rumpelstiltskin as her slave, Selina challenges Regina to a fight to the death and shocks the evil queen with the re- reveal of their fam- familial connection. And the town lays Neil to rest. Meanwhile, back in the fair- back in the past of the- of the land, Oz, a, a jealous Selina, as the wizard to send her to, to-, to- her to fairytale land after discovering that she has a sis- she has a sister, Regina, and Rumpelstiltskin is tra- and that Rumpelstiltskin is training her to become a powerful force to be reckoned with. Yes, and this started out with the first legitimate funeral for a character on this show. Yeah, for once, and it was kind of emotional and sad. But with the fairy tale world, it's always kind of like, oh, maybe he can come back somehow. Yeah, or he's in he's in magical land now. Right, exactly. Uh, I loved the origin story of Selena. Um, I don't yes. know how much it holds up holds up to. The, um, the original movie or even the Sam Raimi version recently, but um, uh, yeah, I, there really wasn't. It, I don't really think there was a written origin in literature. I don't think so. Yeah, and the the Sam Raimi movie that was something he came up with, I think. So, can I kind of like this origin a little bit better? And I will say that that for TV, this was a good Oz. The you know the world. Yes, got very good Oz. Uh, I thought the Wizard was done. Pretty well. Yeah, they 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 tied it, they tied it, they connected it well to you know to this mid-season premiere, which was good. Even though uh, my sister was watching it with me, she goes, "It's the Mad Hatter behind the curtain." Oh, you mean the Winter Soldier? Right, exactly. Maybe that's right, what. No, they could have done that. Yeah, and I, you know what, I I think I think Sebastian Stan is done with the show. Yeah, I wouldn't blame him. Uh, it's not because it's bad; it's just that his character doesn't really have a purpose on the show. Right, and. Of course, her her stepdad had to look like Rumpelstiltskin in a way. Yeah. Like, of course. Yes. And, um... Do you think Rumpelstiltskin is her? No. Okay. I hope not, because I'm tired of this. Everything that's Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, like, like S.H.I.E.L.D. does with It's All Connected, which I like. I'm tired with the hashtag, uh, everyone is, uh, everyone's related to everybody. That's a hashtag right. that, that I'm ready to kill. Well, it's just... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things about this show... That gets under your skin. Yeah, like Hook and Emma, which is yes, <sighs> which is a turn off to some people. Honestly, like I'm not interested in. I, you know, they have some good interaction, but f a relationship, yo, I don't want it. And that kind of makes me lose a little bit of faith in this show because I feel like they killed Neil off because of fan outcry, and they hold on to an audience. Yeah, and that's not good. That's not good writing to me. In my right, to be completely honest, got really. Uh, Regina still stands out as the better story. Um, the fight they had was something invested me in the. I was invested in with the episode. Mm-hmm. That's what kept my interest. I could really care less what was going on with them on Hook. Sadly, that I was the, the case. Robin Hood love story is very good as well. I like that actor. He's 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 good. Yeah, I mean they need to stick with the quality plot lines, not the things that are making the shippers happy. Yeah, there's nothing. Have, go ahead. There's nothing wrong with being a shipper. I I'm, I I understand that, and I say it to our fans out there. But when you're starting to root, for, you know, when you're starting to share more for a relationship story instead of a legit arc, like right. the, R- Regina going up against um, Wicked, it, it, it I kind of get annoyed by it. Yes, because I did not come to the show for relationships. I came for some good action and some good storylines and some good performances, like with Lana Perilla. Exactly. Yes, because it just doesn't. There doesn't seem to be any creativity between 
Kokodama getting together. Yeah, I'm fine with them just being friends. Yes. Well, and it totally kills the family aspect of the show completely. What do you mean? Because Neil and Emma and Henry, I saw them as a family. I saw them as a family together. Because this is supposed to be a family show. Does Hook really look like a dad to you? No, he looks like a, a spike with black hair. Right. And that's really what he is. He's Spike of this TV show. Yeah. And that's weird for a, a family show. I don't feel like this show is Buffy. I like uh, him interacting with Henry. I think it's a good it's a good dynamic. Yeah. But no, I don't want Hema, whatever the shipper name is, yeah. Swan Queen. I'm sorry, Swan Queen, which, uh, you know, I, I respect. And I respect, you know, no, not Swan Queen. It's, it's um, Ca- um, Captain Emma. I don't, Can Swan, I think- Swan Hook. I think it hurts um, Jennifer Morrison's performances. Because she has to just focus on regular drama. Yeah. Where, you know, you've got this balance between good and evil. This struggle that Regina's dealing with. And that's far more fascinating. Exactly. Because she's not sure she can be happy. Yeah. But I like the the battle. I like basically the, all the Regina stuff and the Selena. Regina, Selena. That fits good. And, and I thought that... Regina giving Robin Hood her heart was better romance stuff than anything we got with Hook and Hella. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, guys, I we don't. This was a pretty straightforward episode, so yeah. we're gonna wrap it up here. So we will see you next week. Yep. See you guys. All right. Now, special guest Bill will return this week to discuss with me the episode betrayal. Joe targets an enemy son after being publicly condemned. Elsewhere, Ryan learns that Claire is alive and Mandy makes a decision that could undo all of Joe's work. This week, we're going to welcome back my dad, Bill, to the show. And we're going to kick off this week's discussion with a discussion about Claire and Ryan. This week's episode begins with Claire and Ryan finally talking after Ryan has presumed Claire to be dead for the last year or so. Claire comes clean with Ryan that she faked her own death to keep Joey safe. Though it appears that keeping Claire alive at the end of season one was always the writer's plan. Claire being alive when Ryan is dating Carrie makes it feel as if Carrie is being used as a weak plot device, something to separate Ryan further from Claire. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Claire says that Joey isn't safe until Joe is dead, but when was the last time Joe even mentioned Joey? If the if we saw scenes where Joe is plotting to get him back, just talking about him even, this would be more believable. It feels disjointed that Joey's safety is Claire's seemingly only reason for ending Joe's life. After all he's done to her, without seeing Joe actually even acknowledge his son at some point. Dad, we've discussed the Claire and Carrie issue before. Do you have any new insight now that they've actually met? Also, what are your thoughts on the whole Joe and Joey situations? It's strange that Joe has not mentioned him, right? Yes. Actually, I believe Joe has placed the Joey search on the back burner. Remember, Joe has a fabulous plan that probably has nothing to do with the Crimson Cult. Could this fabulous plan be an end run to find Joey? And does Joe have a yet unnamed cult following moving towards that ending? Finding Joey... uh, Remember, Claire knows nothing about what is happening with Joe except for what is on the news. As for the rivalry between Claire and Carrie, I don't think there's even a choice for Ryan. Claire is his choice. 
Yeah, and by the end of the episode, Ryan finds himself at Corbin, working as yet another cliffhanger that will most certainly get viewers to come back for next week. This is, after all, a season designed to position Ryan to get his revenge on Joe, even though Claire isn't actually dead. We got a scene earlier in the season in which Ryan was looking down from a second story of a house to Joe in the front yard, driving off. This is even more immediate than that, and Ryan has the benefit of being able to blend in with the other Corbin folk, no doubt by killing one of them, because that's what Ryan does. He kills people, like nearly as many as Joe has, and and taking one of their outfits as a disguise. Dad, what is Ryan's motivation for killing Joe now that Claire is not actually dead? It can't actually be to keep Joey and Claire safe, can it? Also, do you think Hardy will kill another follower to blend blend in at Corbin? And what does that say about Ryan Hardy and his propensity to kill? Actually, I just hoped he'd go and shoot right from behind the tree. However, Ryan's motivation really doesn't hinge on if Claire's alive. We are going to see this battle move forward with Ryan eventually killing Joe. I just hope it's not sooner than later. Along the way, many of Joe's crimson cult will die. Yeah, I think we all wanted him to just shoot him from behind that tree and be done with it, but (laughs) that's not going to be the case. We still have another season at least to go. Balancing Joe's part of the story is what's going on with Lily Gray and her evil twins. If Ryan is meant to take down Joe and his arc, the Lily Gray arc certainly ends with a confrontation with Weston. So the question of how exactly Mike gets to that point is still up in the air since no one has any idea where Lily is and since Lily's main goal is to get where Joe is. If this means one wild Corbin all-out brawl between all parties involved, I can't imagine a more superficially entertaining conclusion to this season. And since Mike, Max, and Claire want to help Ryan, that makes sense. It also makes sense that Ryan goes alone because he never enlists the help of anyone when he can just go on a killing rampage himself. But we still know that Joe is somehow going to wind up escaping or squeezing his way into some kind of similar situation for next season, since there's at least one more season of the following in the cards. I suspect that that makes Lily the endgame, which makes the murder of Mandy slightly more significant in pitting viewers' hatred against her. Mandy was, after all, one of the more innocent characters of this show, even if she wasn't without fault and complicity in the murder of her own mother. So Dad, what did you think of the murder of Mandy? Did you see it coming early on in the episode, or did you expect her to find a place in Lily's orphan cult? What do you see as the endgame of this season, Lily or Joe or an all-out brawl between all three parties at Corbin or something else completely? And then, is there anything I missed this week we should have discussed? Well, I was really disappointed in how quickly Mandy was dispatched by the evil twins. I thought Lily would be more patient and bake cakes and brownies with her until she was able to convince Mandy of her true love of Joe. Lily's motivation really is to find Joe. Any revenge for wrongs to her family would have to wait. As for the Mike and Lily feud, I'm waiting for the Song of Vendetta to play, triggering Mike into eliminating the orphan cult and its leader, Lily, leaving the Ryan-Joe battle for later. By killing Mandy, Lily effectively ended her chances of finding Joe and exacting any revenge against him. I believe that this will end up being the true story of the year with the Joe and Ryan Uh, Okay, so you see that as the end game for this season. Alright, I can get behind that. Anyway, that's our discussion for this week's episode of The Following. Thanks, Dad, for once again joining me for this discussion this week. I hope all of you will join us next week when Andy returns for the episode The Reaping. And with that, we're going to throw things over to Andy and Wu for their Glee section this week. Take it away, guys. Glee! 
Thank you to the creators, Dan Schmidt and Nico Reifstek. My name is Wu S. Kim, and welcome to the New Direction section. And alongside me is Mr. Andy Babak. Now, Mr. Babak, please tell us the official description for this week's episode of Glee. Bash. Rachel takes the next step in com uh, committing to her role in Funny Girl. Meanwhile, Kurt is the victim of an attack because of his sexual pre preference. Uh, okay, uh, first of all... um. I, th I thought the, the Sam and Mercedes storyline was really cute and, but at the same time, really unnecessary at the same time, too. Love the weekly Monday potluck dinner thing. One thing I have to say that I didn't say to you off microphone, sir, I, I've met some of those people that just sit on benches in parks and just yell and tell people what to do. I've actually told Me them too. to screw I've actually met, told them to screw off many times. Yeah, like, it happened to me too. Who are you to talk to me like that? But I thought, I thought her, her, um, Mercedes rendition of the, with the Franklin song was really good. I can't believe she took her this long to sing that song. I thought she already sang that once before. But what did you think about the storyline? I, I like it. I, I, I think I said back in season three, um, or no, no, wait, we didn't know each other in season three, but in season four, I said that I always liked the Mercedes and Sam relationship. I felt that it could have been more explored, but then they decided to, you know, de, you know, de-status a couple of the cast members, you know, to guest stars or whatever, and then Amber Riley became the winner of Dancing with the Stars. So, you know, that's, we haven't had time to see that, but I felt it, it's fun. They have chemistry. It's fun. But the only thing that kind of threw me off the bat wagon was, oh my God, he's wide. You're popular now. You can't be together with him. Yeah, and yeah, it really, it really felt forced. That storyline just really felt forced. And this is, you know, what's a shock to me? This episode was written by Ian Brennan, one of the showrunners. This is not his. This didn't feel like like his style, to be honest. I mean, I mean, let's, I mean, let's move on because, quite honestly, it's the the reason I brought it up first was it was the weaker part of the episode. <laughs> Rachel leaving Niada did seem a little out of the blue, but again, Funny Girl is. All she's wanted to do ever since she was like eight years old was anybody really surprised that she was gonna walk out of Yada? I just wonder what her parents or her dad are gonna feel about it because I think I'm I'm assuming that she's been getting you know financial support from them all this whole time. Yeah, but at the same time, I was not surprised that she did what she did because you Rachel. Know, speaking of that, how does she make a living in this freaking town? She doesn't even. Oh wait, she does actually work at the diner. Although I think she quit. Um, no, she didn't quit. I don't think she quit. I think, uh, I I think she's still working at the diner but part time. But this is the main, that scene in her office, this is the main reason why I really dislike most actors and actresses that are talented. Because just because they think they're talented, they can do anything they want and talk to people any way they want. And I really like Carmen Thibodeau during that one scene with the duet with Blaine and Rachel. That was hilarious. When I, you know, because it began so nicely, quiet and so on. But then Blaine just shows up and I'm like, just like... And I could see the look on Thibodeau's face. I could see the look on Whoopi Goldberg's face. She was not happy. No, I was not happy either. I was like, oh my god, this is awful. Well, not, the song itself wasn't that bad, but you don't change things up, uh, especially when the professor tells you, no, you do it this way. Yeah, if you if you, if you you wanted to do that way, you should at least ask first before the, uh, the performance. If she said no, then you would have not done that. No, no, you, don't, you shouldn't even ask. You should just not do it that way because, uh, like, art professors like who are that way are very clear about what they want and if you don't give them what they want they have every right in the world to fail you yeah that was yeah it, but it was i was laughing my ass up the whole time because she her expression was just everybody everybody was cheering they were smiling but she was like mm -hmm. 
Nice, nice to see that set again. I love that round room set. I think it's I think it's actually at Cal Arts here in Los Angeles. I love that set. It's beautiful. I love Bobby Goldberg as Carmen Thibodeau. It's nice to see her back. We haven't seen her in like a year, so it was. Nice I think to... I, th- I think she was there at the season premiere. Actually, she's been. I, we've seen her hey, one more time this season. And maybe one scene, but I, this is the most we've seen her uh, in but a year. The, yeah, but that you know because of the view, you know she can't do that much. Which I find ironic because that show actually does shoot in New York where this one kind of half pretends to be in New York but um maybe that's why it fit maybe that that round room is actually in New York no it's at, it's in Los Angeles my friend told me that, that that's it have you it's been there no but the, but they've been there and it's at like either Cal Arts or UCLA I can't remember, okay. remember which one. okay let's get to um yeah I, I'm not surprised that she dropped out but uh yeah but like I've said Zibu after microphone aside from his death we don't like to use his name too much because it's it hurts us. Um, aside from his death, Rachel has been out of balance this whole season. She's not felt like the Rachel that I've come to know. Wu may disagree with me, but I felt that last season she was more natural. This season she's been first A, then B, then C, then D, and she's back to A, then she's back to C, and so on. Well, I think this is what happens when the success gets to your head. Like, you... T- you think you can talk to people any way you want to. You think you can behave any way you want to. And like I told Andy off microphone, if Finn was in that scene with Kurt and Rachel at the restaurant, he would be so ashamed of her. Like that's the thing. That's why it makes me now. I'm because you know I'm not gonna start crying now, but you know it makes me sad that that he's dead now because you know if you think about the character, he's the one that grounded her all the time. Kurt and, can do it. Santana sure can, even though she's one of the most you know strict and harshest character on this show. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's what the writers are trying to show, even though we don't really need to have it shown that the absence of Finn is really having an effect on Rachel that we... Like, you know that, what I think is going to happen? Here's my speculation. I think her uh, Funny Girl show is going to... Her per- first show is going to fail. Yeah. Uh, it surprised me if it would succeed. I think she's... Oh my god, what if she chokes again? Like in front of Carmen uh, Tibbetal oh in season 3. Oh my god. She will never I, work Broadway I, I, I never thought about that. I never thought about it. <laughs> but moving on to really the heart of this episode, which is why it's called Bash. Um, there's been reports in New York City that um, a group of guys have been beating up on homosexuals because they're uncomfortable with the, the fact that homosexuals are moving into, quote, I'm using my quote fingers, air quote, their neighborhood. And Kurt, after his argument with Rachel for for leaving Yada, he finds he finds out that a, a kid's getting roughed up by these guys and pretty much getting the tar beaten out of him. He, try, he comes up to defend this kid, and these guys just turn their attention on him and put him in the hospital. Take a brick and nail and yeah. hit him right in the back of the head, which looked which looked disgusting as all hell. Yeah, I, I I will say this. Here's what I you know because Glee has always been good at you know ish you know st- you know touching on these subjects with you know which is serious of course. And I felt like this felt real. This felt like you were seeing you know that this was the realest thing you could see on in this episode. And uh, I felt it was good. It was quick that we didn't see the faces of those uh, morons. And yes, I'm going to say I'm going to call them morons. 
because they were. Yeah, I, uh, the only thing we saw of them was their mouths, really. It's like the only you thing. See, we saw. If you if you pause the episode on Fox's website, you can briefly see one of their eyes, but it's yeah. so quick. That's great. That's great directing and great lighting by the d- director of photography, only lighting their mouths. And that, really... that's a tight. That's a tight uh, space. How do you? you really... That's very tight. Because you re- and this is useful because these guys are still out there, and I like and I like that. You know, th- this could be a continuing storyline, possibly. But my favorite shot in the whole episode is Kurt lying on the ground as the truck is driving away. I thought that was a really yeah. well like, I, like that. That's that was such a real moment, and I I'm not I'm not saying that, oh my god I love this moment, but it's just like it's they I love how real they made it look, so that they can actually give some attention to these people. You know, some you know to, you know they can actually issue to people that don't know that this is happening in the in the world. It's not just in uh, here in the states; it's all over the world. Okay? And are always bashed all the time. And I'm glad that season two Kurt came back because we haven't seen like Kurt fighting, fighting for his, the rights that he believes in for a couple seasons. Nice to actually see like you know like Scrappy Kurt. I'm not gonna back down, Kurt. Nice yeah, that, yeah, him. great performance by by Chris Colfer. Great performance by Michael Malley too because well, he's 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 always perfect. Well, I was wondering, are they gonna bring him in? Or are they not gonna bring him in? Because, like, like, it was getting towards the end of the oh, episode. You, so you, oh, so you missed that it said in the in the credits, sir? Uh? No. Well, well, yeah, because, like, I'm I'm so caught up when I'm watching some shows that I don't see the credits sometimes. Because, like... But I knew he was, he was going to come back. Uh, so. Okay, okay. But it's still, but still, regardless, like, um, Bert wasn't mad at Kurt for what he did. He was just mad that it's his son that got put in the hospital and could have gotten killed. Yeah, and like here's the thing: whenever you, your your child, your kid is hurt or whatever, you first you you're angry as a parent that why did you do this? Why are you so stupid? And then you you know because but that's because you're you're scared that you know they are never they're never furious truly with you. They're just sad and upset because it happened to you. And they're sad that you know these while these morons are getting away, the hero gets almost killed. Yeah, if it, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not trying to like advocate for violence here, but if you're gonna do something like that, get a knife or a t- Taser or a stun gun or something. Never, never run into one of those things without being like somewhat prepared with some kind of weapon. Whatever. I'm not saying a gun. I'm just saying like a knife or something like that. And I want to comment on one more thing uh, because here's something that we, you know, we as viewers should make. You know, we need to make take more attention to. If you hear screaming or, you know, because that, that was pretty loud. I sh- I'm sure that those people that walked by, I, I'm sure that some of them just, you know, turned their head and like, oh boy, crap, whatever. I don't know, man. New York can get pretty loud. I know, I know, but it's still like, if you ever see something like that, call the police. You know, this is, you know, this is your after school special with Andy. I'm not good mm-hmm. at it. You call the police. You call for someone in the neighbor, you know, in nearby to help whoever, whoever's being, you know, violated or being crushed or something. You help them. And- uh, while someone calls the police, but don't, I, but don't I, turn your no wait. I'm I'm almost done. Don't turn your eye away. Don't keep walking because as human beings, we we need to help each other. Whether we're friends, strangers, whatever. I'm done. I I agree, I agree with Andy, but at the same time, I can't blame Kurt for what he did. No, I understand. Reacted, that was that was a, because you're not thinking because you're not thinking. Okay, I'm gonna call the police. This guy needs my help, and I have to run in run in here and help him. Yeah, yeah. Because who knows? By the time you're calling the police. They could have killed that kid. Yeah. 
But uh, overall, and like with the songs, here's Wu and I haven't really commented on the songs for the past few episodes because, frankly, they haven't really stood out. They're just like, okay, that's nice, that's nice. The drama is getting, you know, the the, you know, the focus on the storylines are getting better, but we haven't really been like, oh my god, the songs, OMG, they're so amazing. I love Blaine's song to Kurt in the hospital. I saw the song is from Sweeney Todd, which I saw last week. My friends did it. I like that there was no music in the background because Glee is notorious for having just music in the background when they do performances. I'm glad when he was singing to Kurt in the hospital, there was no, there was no background music. That it was just Anderson's uh, voice. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because Glee's notorious for like doing like songs with background music just for background music's sake. I like that there was no background music. I agree. But yeah, that's all the time we have, guys, for this week. Join us next week. Yeah, lots to talk about. Yeah. Let's take it back to Mr. Ryshek and Mr. Schmidt. See you guys next week. See you next week. Bye. All right. And I'd like to thank our guests, Wu, Andy, and Bill for covering their sections. And now we're going to jump to the sitcom section. Nico and I are going to cover part one of Community Season 5 finale. Basic story. Subway plans to purchase the Greendale campus and establish a Subway University at its place. Meanwhile, Jeff considers an employment offer from Subway. Britta ponders an offer from Jeff, and Annie and Abed obtain information about Greendale's first dean, which leads to a discovery within the school's walls. This week's community started out as another episode I was going to enjoy for its playful cleverness, rather than delivering big laughs. With Abed's paranoia come out the show being in the classic TV calm before the storm scenario, resulting in a cautionary tale about Subway taking over Greendale. However, once Subway purchasing the Greendale campus came into play, I found myself laughing left and right at all of the characters' reactions to Subway taking over, including the Dean crying in his underwear on his office floor, and Chang singing the $5 foot-long song. In fact, the whole concept of Greendale being turned into Subway University was hilarious. Through the irony of Subway, the company who has saved community from cancellation being the cause of Greendale's closing within the show, got it erupting into a Goonies like scenario in part two of the season finale. Speaking of this episode being the start of a two-parter, I'm really hoping we get a resolution to Abed's conflict with always needing a story next week. Because they kind of dropped the ball on it here. Okay, where did Jeff marrying Britta come from? I thought their romance was over like four years ago. Nico, what was your thoughts on this week's episode of Community? Are we in for another season finale that's written to work as a series finale? You know, Dan, I thought the beginning of this episode was extremely slow and sort of boring. But I also was energized by the subway taking over the school and the need for the Save Greendale community to actually save Greendale this time around. As soon as the Goonies story came in, I knew the second half of this two-part season finale was going to be epic. But for the most part, the laughs have been just cursory, and I think this first part was merely a setup for the much better second half coming next week. As for the Jeff and Britta thing, I was completely caught off guard by this and really disappointed because you're correct. That was over and done with two seasons ago. Why jump back on that bandwagon? No need in my opinion, so I was disappointed with that. Anyway, I'm super excited for next week's conclusion, and I do think they are going to go big enough and wrap things up enough that it could easily work as a series finale if they do not get picked up for the sixth season and that movie. But right now, it's looking very good for a sixth season. Yeah, I'd say sixth season. I don't know about that movie. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, what what else does NBC have? That's my point. Right. So I, I think it's dumb if they don't. And Subway's got their back, right? Right, exactly. And I want one of those black cards. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Gotta love Chang Sing Five Valley Football song. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was pretty good. They need to get catchy already just do commercial because it cracks me up every time. 
got next week. Remember, Goonies never die. Looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, I am too. I, I thought we might get a Goonies when Abed said something about buried treasure early in the story. And then when they actually went that route, I was like, yes! God. <laughs> uh, I know the Goldbergs did it, because that was yeah, kind of fun. it was great. This could be better. Stan Harmon, he's amazed us with G.I. Joe's, and eight-bit video games and everything else, so the Goonies version's going to be great. Okay, I think so. And with that, we're going to move into this week's Big Bang Theory, the relationship disruption. All started with a Big Bang! Raj and Howard double date, and the latter is flushed with embarrassment after Raj's girlfriend reveals a secret she knows about Howard. Meanwhile, Sheldon is at loose ends when he begins to believe he's wasted his life trying to prove string theory. All right, everyone. Let's say the word together now. Geode. Geode is a fun word for geologists to say. Okay, with that bit of pronunciation out of the way, we can talk about this week's Big Bang, which had me laughing all the way through the episode. Okay, Sheldon's breakup with string theory including his reading of his cosmetology magazine, getting a haircut that made Amy call him sex on a stick, having a one-night stand with a geology textbook, and the bizarre concept of Sheldon having a voice in his head that he calls the Duchess. Also, what topped off Sheldon's breakup of the most humor-wise was his drunken phone calls to Stephen Hawking, which I don't think he could live down for a while. Also, I enjoyed the progression of Roger's romance with Emily, revolving around her having an embarrassing history with Howard. But I'm glad the history was bathroom humor related, rather than Howard being perverted. I just think going the perverted route would have been a big step back for Howard's character, and creating a conflict with Bernadette that wasn't really necessary. On the other hand, how the writer of this episode brought both Howard and Sheldon's conflicts together was good thinking, and something they should use more often to mix it up every once in a while. Nico, what was your thoughts on this week's episode of The Big Bang Theory? You know, Dan, my favorite comedic moments from this week's episode included Howard's bathroom disaster, <laughs> Howard's wisecrack comments about Raj's ground rules for the double date, like when it turns out she's made of rubber, I don't say anything, <laughs> and no jokes about how close I am with my dog, or the truth about how close I am with <laughs> my dog. Beckham can bend it, Ralph can wreck it, and Raj can blow it. Oof. That was a great line. Sheldon's analogy of geology being the Kardashians of science, I love that line. Sheldon waking up hungover next to the geology textbook so glad it was wasn't amy i didn't think it was gonna be no they were they were playing with that but i think it would have been just awful it would have been a terrible mistake and finally sheldon's great drunk dial voicemails to stephen hawking they were just priceless yes (laughs) pretty solid episode this week and i think it was even better because there was no penny and leonard crap this week even though sheldon was going through a breakup of sorts uh, i just thought it was great that they didn't go that route or anything with Penny and Leonard. But I, I think Penny was used well as being the person who gave Sheldon the advice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just wasn't any Penny right. and Leonard crap. And I think that's how they should be used. Yep. From now on, I really do. Yeah, I agree. And with that, you ready to go down the rundown section? You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's Pulp for Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. EMT. We know trauma. Yeah, we're going to kick off things this week with the finale episode of Justified, entitled Restitution. Ray 
Blade tries to get Wendy to wear a wire to catch Daryl confessing. Ava loses her protection in prison, takes matters into her own hands, gaining her credibility back. Boyd once again finds himself in hot water with the cartel, but is accidentally rescued by the Martians. I wish I could say that this episode, Restitution, rode in on its horse and saved Season 5 from its troubles in the 11th, or 13th as it were, hour, but it didn't. Instead, the episode was on par with the rest of the season, meaning it was fine, but still very short of the brilliance we know that Justified is capable of. I suppose that is the curse of being a prestige drama like Justified. But I'll give this episode restitution credit for resolving most of the season 5's unfinished stories by the time Raylan and Ava parted ways on that shady meeting bridge, and they all had to go off and prepare for season 6, the series' final season, which was looming in the distance. That's not to say it was bad, it was actually a very good episode. It just wasn't as cataclysmic or dynamic an ending as we've seen in previous seasons. The slow burn didn't burn off into something, it rather just sort of burned out. That was with due purpose, though, as the ending had to focus on two things, Daryl Crow finally being put down and pointing to the end of the series with Boyd. In making both those the focus, neither was central to the season 5 ending. That's fine. Really, I wanted something that pointed to a great season 6 and the end of the series next year, and we got that, even if it was a little mm, ham-fisted in its delivery. The focus for season 6 is clear, with Boyd still on the loose and bringing the most trouble for Harlan County, it's time the marshals took a good hard look at him and tried to take him down. I actually thought I saw more of a confidential informant ending for Boyd. He seems like a much better fit to take Hot Rod's job since there's no one in that role right now. That cartel problem, you know, I hope they don't just let that go and be the end of it, but that seems to say no. On the other hand, that could be his ace in the hole, get protected from the cartel by turning in a few people in return Justified's never been one to spare its characters, so who knows? There's a lot of possibilities here. The point being, the Boyd Raylan finale is the ending the show deserves. There's enough mystery in that bag of tricks to make for a thrilling end to the series. But it needs to be done carefully and with remembrance to Boyd and Raylan's original connection. We dug coal together. Ava finally got out of prison. Thank goodness the random prison guard didn't actually come back because that would have been a terrible ending to that story. But it left us with enough questions to think maybe he did for a little bit. Instead, Raylan gave her a chance to turn on Boyd and she took it. Now we're set for Ava's season 6 story. There's not a ton of options in the future of that story, however. Either she turns on Boyd after hemming and hawing about what to do for like three episodes, or she realizes she was the one who pushed Boyd away in the first place and helps him get out of the situation she put him in. But it'll make for a much better ending than anything Ava went through this season for sure. Maybe the writers can pull some sleight of hand to trick us one way or another one more time. This episode had a lot of great acting in it. The scene between Raylan and Kendall was brilliant. Boyd and the cartel guys was fun. And that scene with Wendy and Daryl in the end. All good stuff. Boyd's entire clash with the cartel came to an end pretty quickly, though hopefully that won't be the last of it. Jimmy's death is a tragedy. It's tough to feel too bad about it since there were so many important deaths this season, but he was a great tertiary character and he'll be missed. I did love that Boyd thought he <laughs> that he, he could convince those two cartel henchmen to turn on their boss. I love that these bad guys had a pretty good sense of humor. I also loved how Boyd turned that amazing shootout scene on its head by turning it into some kind of heroics for himself. Daryl's death didn't quite have the gusto of other characters did, however. 
Now, it was a good ending, and Wendy was one of the few things I found myself rooting for this season in the Crow arc, and to see her stand up for herself was great. I love that she shot his balls off first, and then when he still kept coming, put him down. In the end, the episode itself was very good, but for Justified, which prides itself on great, cataclysmic endings, it fell a little flat from a little bit of disorganization. Sure, Daryl's death was a great moment, as Wendy finally stood up to him, but this wasn't on par with what we've seen from this series so far. Season 5 will have to be remembered for a few running threads that worked together, but never really unified neatly in the justified way. It did, however, lead into what looks like a great final battle between Raylan and Boyd for Season 6, the final season. So we have that going for us, for sure. Join us next year for the final season of Justified when we return with it when it returns in January. Next, we're going to move on to the Americans episode entitled ARPANET. KGB agent Charles Duluth helps Philip use the early version of the internet to monitor U.S. government communications. Meanwhile, Nina is drawn closer to Oleg, which he discovers she may need to face the lie detector. As one might expect from the title, this episode ARPANET went further into a storyline bringing the Jennings into contact with the future in the form of what will become the internet. It's a tricky inclusion because you don't want to be too cutesy with it as far as the description of what it can do. For the most part, I think it was handled very well in this episode as Philip and fellow spy Charles heard the description of an interstate highway system through which all information flows while not truly grasping what this means. Back in the early 80s, everyone still saw the early 21st century as the time where we'd be leaping into flying cars and other much more visual large examples of future tech. Instead, it's almost all been about small or in some ways invisible technology driven by the internet. So it's pretty interesting to see the Americans about pe- people dealing with advanced technology for the time, getting a glimpse at what's truly to come. In addition, we know something was up when Nina took over the opening narration duty with her Russian rendition of Previously on the Americans. Continuing her fallout with Stan from last week, Nina began what would basically be her episode by agreeing to the polygraph test. Arkady told her to take Stan's polygraph test with coaching from Oleg on how to pass it. There was some great material here as Oleg gave her some very specific instructions. Squeeze your anus before you answer the question. And also forewarned her about tricks she would indeed encounter later like the ambiguous result curveball. With a newfound ability to bend the truth, Nina continued her withdrawal from the arms of the increasingly lonely Stan while outwardly appearing to do the opposite because she's just that good. Annette Mahendru did terrific work here, showing Nina's nervousness mixed with her determination to get through this. Things certainly were highly charged as her actual polygraph included questions about both Amador and Vlad, and Mahendru really nailed that look of quiet relief as Stan told her she'd passed. Also, Who thought a scene where one character just says yes and no could be so riveting? The reveal that Nina was with Oleg at the end was quite surprising. She was so confident and seemingly lustful with him, but now that we've seen her manipulate Stan, it's hard to not wonder if she's doing the same to a guy who came into her life oh so full of himself and ready to take charge. I'm not really a fan of this union, but maybe she's just playing with yet another guy trying to control her. I guess time will tell with this story. I mean, remember, had Stan not murdered Vlad, Nina would most likely still be his asset. We also got to know Lucia more this week. 
finding out that just how driven she is with her agenda to kill Larrick. She clearly wasn't happy with Elizabeth telling her Larrick is an asset, as vile as he is, and I'm guessing that that will cause some problems down the road. Apart from the psychological stuff, the actual technical aspects of how a polygraph works earned its keep in this episode. This show is as much vintage gadget porn as it is taut thriller, and what better device to feature than one that purports to suss out the truth as your body tells it. However, I can tell you from my own interrogation and profiling training that the new machines have a butt pad to test for that anus clutch technique Nina used to pass the old polygraph this week. Once more this week, one of the Jennings killed a completely innocent person who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Philip did what he had to do, but in his next scene with the dismissive Charles, he couldn't help but show how much this part of the job really eats away at him. The show began with Philip debating cutting and running from their lives as spies, and it's good to once in a while get a reminder that this temptation probably still lurks beneath the surface for him. The Americans looking at the beginning of what will become the internet is an inherently interesting idea that is was a lot of fun to see the show explore. Meanwhile, Nina's dangerous situation taking that polygraph test and Philip once again forced to kill to protect a mission was a reminder of just how perilous a life these people are living and how it can come crashing down at any time. This is one of the best shows on television and I hope you join us next week for the continuation of this great second season with the episode New Car. Next, we're going to move on to my review of the entire first season of Helix on Sci-Fi that wrapped up its season last week. So here's my review of season one of Helix. Helix is an intense thriller about a team of scientists, from the Centers for Disease Control, who travel to a high-tech research facility in the Arctic to investigate a possible disease outbreak, only to find themselves pulled into a terrifying life-and-death struggle that holds the key to mankind's salvation or total annihilation. Helix started promisingly enough, with a group of doctors from the Centers of Disease Control sent to a remote Arctic base to combat a mysterious virus and getting way more than they bargained for. The show had a cool retro vibe and was really good at bringing the scary. Early episodes like Single Strand and The White Room were full of great imagery and gory but wacky violence. If you embraced the show's campy style, you were in for a fun and freaky hour. One of my favorite parts about this series was the seemingly mismatched music to what was going on, especially the elevator music that makes up the show's intro. Also, a fantastic two-episode guest arc by Jerry Ryan served as a welcome distraction as the show started to slow down in the middle of the season. I love the infected vectors, the fast-moving, super-strong monsters who were compelled to vomit black goo into others to transform them as well. Disgusting but cool, the vectors seemed to slowly lose touch with their humanity, but developed their own culture and a religion, maybe, that seemed to put Peter in the god seat. But then, just like that, the surviving vectors were cured and then wiped out by the scythe. I also felt that the sense of isolation and being trapped was pivotal to Helix's early success, so it was sort of a letdown when characters started coming and going between the base and surrounding area. I think keeping them more isolated for the first season would have been a better course of action, although that would have prevented Jerry Ryan's great guest spot and, er and the arrival of the scythe, which propelled the story toward next season. One of season one's best moments was the cliffhanger at the end of 274, when Julia realized that Sarah's test for the Narvik virus didn't work. This meant that there were uninfected people down in level R and infected people up in the upper levels. Communications went out just at the moment Julia tried to warn the others, and when Sarah encountered a vector, she befriended the woman and euthanized her when the woman begged her to. Other than that, there was no payoff 
of that great cliffhanger. No other vectors popped up that we saw. Neither Alan nor anyone else was furious at Sarah for hiding the fact that her test didn't work. And Sarah never felt guilty about finding the cure a week or so after killing her newfound friend. The series really peaked with Single Strand and The White Room, as I mentioned before. Episodes that were delightfully trippy. Julia's hallucinations allowed the audience to interact with the show by trying to riddle out the truth. But once she was cured, we were suddenly either force-fed the show's new bizarre mythology, essentially Hitaki being 500 years old, Julia becoming an immortal, and the whole corporation of deadly immortals behind all of this. Or we were subjected to repetitive, sort of half-assed questioning sessions where Hitaki would be maddeningly self-righteous and vague about but no one really seemed to press him on any of the to get answers it would be like meeting ben linus halfway through season one of lost Julia and Alan's run-in with the chained-up immortal could have provided us some clues, but that ended just as quickly as he appeared. Now, sci-fi obviously put some money into Helix, and visually, the show was often a thing of beauty. The wonderful set design combined with a cheery 1960s soundtrack to evoke a retro sci-fi vibe, and while some of the rat stuff may have looked fake, the CGI shots of the base were gorgeous and wholly believable. It's hard to believe that place doesn't exist. And as I said, one of my favorite aspects of this show was the whole happy music played ironically over violent scenes. Now, one major complaint I had about the series is that much of the character behavior was inconsistent and often incomprehensible. Sergio murdered Doreen and tried to murder Alan, but was treated more like an irritant after he shows up a second time at the base. Peter was essentially the whole reason Alan and Julia personally went to the Arctic biosystems, yet after agonizing over his condition, they virtually ignored him once he was cured. Peter was revealed to have been working with Ilaria the entire time, but the show spent so little non-vector time on him, it really didn't resonate. In the finale, Peter jealously watched Alan and Julia kiss, but the show has been so ambiguous about the trio, I honestly have no idea whether he was misinterpreting what he saw or whether they had gotten back together. Also, the show spent entirely too much time on the supposed Sergio and Inuit Sheriff character Anna's relationship. I was super excited when the show premiered, but am less so now. I still greatly enjoy the show, but felt like the time jump in the finale was a major misstep. Overall, I'm less excited for the season 2 premiere than I was for the series premiere, but I'm still invested in seeing where this show goes and whether it can be more like its creator's predigree in Battlestar Galactica and less bad action movie that the later part of the season started to feel like. I hope Helix can find its retro sci-fi roots and be the show I thought it was going to be. Helix returns sometime, probably January in 2015. Next, we're going to have a Watch it or not for the new AMC series about the first spies in America with the pilot episode of the series Turn. The story of America's first spy ring is told in this drama, which opens with the Long Island farmer, Gabriel Woodhill, being recruited to spy on the British during the Revolutionary. Turn is another spy story, but one with a very different feel from Nikita, creator Craig Silverstein's last series. Set during the American Revolution, Turn, based on the book Washington's Spies by Alexander Rose, tells the true story of the Culper Ring, credited as America's first spy ring. Jamie Bell stars as Abraham Woodhull, who is recruited by this ring, to help gather information on the British, though it's not something Abe is ex- is eagerly looking forward to. The story begins in the summer of 78, 1778 that is. 
the American Revolution is seemingly destined to fail, and those living on Long Island, New York, are being asked to quarter British officers. They cook their food, clean their clothes, and put up with their sometimes boorish behavior. The Redcoats may be winning the war, but their overbearing presence is causing them to lose the hearts and minds of many who were loyalists when the rebellion started. One such person is Abe Woodhull, played by Jamie Bell, a struggling farmer who's trying to stay out of political matters. Bell has an everyman quality that really informs his character's reluctance to involve himself in anything that might threaten the quiet home life he's trying to maintain with his wife and toddler son. This is complicated by those closest to him, however. Abe's father is tight with Major Hewlett, the stern but fair officer in charge of military affairs in the region. Played by Byrne Gorman, Hewlett portrays a British officer who believes quelling the rebellion is in the best interests of the colonists as well as that of the king. It's a necessary character that helps to balance out the sometimes over-the-top creepiness of the Redcoats at large, and particularly the menacing and weird John Graves Simcoe. Meanwhile, some of Abe's closest childhood friends are either rebel sympathizers or, in fact, actively fighting against the British occupation. His old pal Ben Talmadge, played by Seth Numrich, is a continental dragoon and all-around badass who sees the need for a spy network to turn the tide in the war. Abe's conflicted loyalties add to the suspense, and we're not certain how committed he is to either side. The same goes for ruthless mercenary Robert Rogers, played by Angus McFadden, who currently serves the British, but ultimately is out for himself. There's a lot to like about Turn, especially if you enjoy spy stories and are perhaps a bit of a history buff. All of the performances are strong, and the look and feel of colonial New York feels about right. The series is actually filmed in Virginia, so it has that authentic feel. The pilot was a little slow and burdened with a couple overly expository scenes, but I felt it did a good job of making us care for Abe, Ben, and Abe's former flame, Anna Strong, played by Boardwalk Empire's Heather Lynn. Abe and Anna were once engaged, but were forced to separate by their fathers. That soap opera element is a little weak, especially since the character of Abe's wife has the rather thankless role of constantly reminding Abe not to take sides in the conflict. Probably the biggest hurdle Turn has to face is the fact that everyone knows how this story ends. Since the big picture isn't in doubt, the series will have to really sustain our interest in the fate and actions of its characters while continuing to show us parts of America's story that maybe we didn't know. In interviews, Craig Silverstein has spoken about how the Culper Ring had to invent many of the basic elements of spycraft, such as aliases and dead drops. Hopefully it will be thrilling to watch these characters find their way in this new world of covert operations. This pilot definitely did its job to ensure I come back for more. I am rating this as a watch, not quite a must-watch like Walking Dead, The Americans Are Justified, but excellent nonetheless. And on to another watch it or not for the new series from Mike Judge about the tech world in which Mike Judge was a member prior to all his success in the entertainment industry, the new series Silicon Valley, with the episode Minimum Viable Product. Computer whizzes tall away at a tech company in California. Could hope their ideas will be the next big thing in this comedy, which begins with Richard being courted by Juliacho Gavin Belson, got an eccentric investor, Peter Gregory, when they see dollar size get his new website, but for entirely different reasons. From the creator of Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill and the writer and director of Office Space comes Mike Judge's newest TV series, Silicon Valley. Mike Judge got his start in the Silicon Valley as a programmer on the F-18 and working for Parallax, so he knows that tech companies can do a lot of good in the world, but that it's hard to focus on the good when it's accompanied by a huge mountain of crap that tech bubbles tend to create. An influx of 
entitled assholes, skyrocketing rent prices, biz speak dropped into regular conversations, and all kinds of other unfortunate byproducts because his new HBO series treats the tech industry like it's his bitch and the result is one very funny show. What makes Silicon Valley so successful is the same formula that earned judges office space a spot in the required viewing list in college dorm rooms in the late 1990s and beyond. It's the story of a group of little guys kicking shit in a world of big guys. Dave versus Goliath Corp. Creative underdogs fighting against the only people who can finance their dreams. And it poses the question of whether or not to sell out. The guys we're rooting for are led by Richard, played by Thomas Middleditch, who could just as easily be Kumal Nanjari's pinder on Franklin and Bash with all the nervous ticks he has. Then there's the crude Ulrich, played by comedian TJ Miller, who runs a programming farm at his house, which he's aptly nicknamed The Incubator, because he treats his recruits like livestock. Rounding out the team are Big Head, played by Josh Brenner, whose head really isn't that big, as far as I can tell. Dinesh, played by the aforementioned Kumal Nanjarni, the token Southeast Asian representative, and Gilfoyle, played by Martin Starr, a man who's as weird as that name. Right from the boot up, these guys feel like friends who've known each other forever and spent countless hours hunched over laptops and eating Indian takeout in close quarters. Silicon Valley doesn't make any obvious effort to explain their various relationships with one another, which I appreciate. They just feel natural and established thanks to the guy's instant chemistry and the lavish insanity of the world around them. And so Silicon Valley's first episode ended with the guys doing what they normally do, playing stupid games, token the reefer, drinking beers, and tapping away on their laptops. But now, the dreams and nightmares they've worked so hard for are right in front of them. With so much potential and outstanding cast and sobering message, Silicon Valley looks poised to be one of the best new comedies of the year, and it is a must-watch. Finally, we're going to finish off our reviews this week with the return from hiatus episode of Grimm entitled The Law of Sacrifice. Nick's mother, Callie Briggs, Adeline from Europe, got teams up with her son to protect the Hexen Beast. Kind of aware that Victor has sent someone to bring Adeline's child back. This episode had so many WTF moments and such a big surprising payoff that it felt at times like a season finale. And don't think I'm not worried about the fact that it felt like a finale, even though there are still several episodes to go before summer vacation, because really, Grim, don't blow it. This season has been so good so far. Don't blow it. Ugh. The title. The title Law of Sacrifice enabled Grimm's good guys and gals to win while simultaneously losing. Mama Grimm didn't go to prison for murdering Adeline's mom a bunch of episodes ago. Renard and Adeline and the baby Diana got to live, and the newly named baby didn't have to go live with her supervillain relatives. But then there are the catches. I'm not entirely sure how Mama Grimm's freedom was granted. I'm sure Renard had a huge say in it. But now Adeline knows who killed her mother, and that could easily drive a wedge between their tentative partnership. Adeline and Renard will no longer be hunted by the royals, but their child is now in the care of a Grimm. And while Renard knows that Diana is safe, Adeline thinks the baby is with the royals, and she thinks Renard is the one who gave her to them. And that's going to be messy. Maybe he'll bring her into the plan. It's not like Mama Grimm didn't basically tell Adeline what was up during her little spiel in the interrogation room. But honestly, it would be safer for the baby if, if as few people as possible knew where she was, including her mother. 
The law of sacrifice is an Old Testament biblical concept. God's decree to Adam and Eve post-Eden was that they would sacrifice the firstborn of their herds as atonement for their sins. With so much attention paid to Diana's specialness and the repeated assertions that she's much more than just a baby hexen beast, there can never be too many biblical illusions. It's been implied for a few times that Diana is some sort of Vesson Messiah, and in Christianity, the notion of animal sacrifices, the law of sacrifice, was voided by the death of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. As both Adeline and Renard's firstborn and the possible Vesson Messiah, the hugeness of Diana's importance cannot be ignored, and yet so much is still unclear. She wasn't even properly named until this week. And what a great name for a baby Vesson Messiah. Diana, goddess of the hunt, women, childbirth, and animals. <laughs> That's just too good to ignore. With the temporary sort of conclusion of the monster baby storyline, Grimm has regained its momentum and then some. I can't believe, though, that we're taking another break. Really, Grimm? I guess Grimm will be back April 25th with the episode Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. And that wraps up our reviews for this week. Now let's move into the voicemail section. A call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. No voicemails this week because Wu's done with his How I Met Your Mother ones. But yes. we thank him again, once again, for his great How I Met Your Mother voicemails for the last few weeks, months, almost a year. So we appreciate those, Wu. Yes, very much so. We look forward to hearing from many of our other listeners in the next couple weeks. So we will have some comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback or a review of the many new shows we haven't had a chance to review yet. Hope to hear from some of you soon. Get calls about Game of Thrones. We'd love to play one of those on the air. Absolutely. That'd be great stuff. Really help us out. Especially if you have read the book and or have not read the books because we'd like to hear from both sides, much like Dan and I discuss it from both sides. Yes, for sure. No spoilers. Yes, please. <laughs> With that, we're going to move on to the closing section. Kaniko, you want to tell everybody what we're doing during our Easter week episode? Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover the spring 2014 TV season with in-depth discussions on Game of Thrones, Once Upon a Time with Dan and Andy, the following with Andy and Nico, The Return of Warehouse 13, Person of Interest, Supernatural, and Glee, and our sitcom section including New Girl and Community. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on The Americans, and maybe even a few more things. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. Okay, just so all of you are aware, across the airwaves.com because had an update now our main page is more set up as a portal page so basically what that means is all of our different podcast shows are listed on our main page so if you want to listen to our show across the airwaves click on the listing for across because that will take you to a blog page listing all of our episodes and you can play our episodes right off the page or subscribe to them through iTunes and the same counts for Glogmo Hunters DC Nation Podcast the Hell Carrier Podcast etc and with that you can also you can check us out got a new home now on the mix radio station which is an online radio station available and i need to add the links to the mix to our website but basically um, in addition to our itunes feed our lips feed got our regular rss feed you can listen to us 
on the mix. Again, basically, um, you can check out our podcast there weekly on Friday at 6 p.m. in the time slot that was graciously given to us by Jack Stipe, the owner of the mix. And our other podcast shows are available on the mix as well at various times. And I'll let Andy and Michael share with you um, that information on their respective podcasts. And so you can check us out on the mix and our regular site of this before, and the links to the mix are going to be coming on the site soon, so keep an eye out for those. Also, I recently set it up that there is a player now on our main website that will play all of our podcast episodes right off of our website. So if you're having trouble figuring out iTunes or don't use it or are confused with our lips and link, you can basically listen to our podcast episodes right on the website in both ACC and regular MP3 formats. I just figured that would make things easier for you guys who are confused on how to listen to our episodes. So those are two big things from our sites that you can check out and hopefully we'll raise up our our listener numbers. Until our next episode, you can check out our spin-off podcast. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a podcast hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And they basically choose a topic that's going on in the entertainment industry to basically talk about it for an hour to an hour and a half. So you can check that out for a mixed bag of topics about the entertainment industry. Also, we've got Across the Airwaves DC Nation podcast, which is briefly out of hiatus right now to kind of be rebooted because more of a DC news source. So we're going to be more so reporting on news coming out of the world of DC entertainment rather than reviewing things. So we're hard at work on that. And also, we've got the Helicarrier podcast, which is hosted by Andy and myself for the current time being. And basically, that covers episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in more detail. And we'll be covering the next new episode of the show when it returns from hiatus. So if you like Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and watching that show, check out the Helicarrier podcast for in-depth reviews on every episode. And if you're a fan of the hit CWTV series Arrow, you can check out ATA Longwalters, the Arrow podcast, hosted by Michael, Jay Petty, and Wu Kim. And that basically is a podcast that covers episodes of Arrow in greater detail on a weekly basis. And they will be covering episodes of Arrow once the show returns from hiatus, which I think is this week. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us as Variety Ways by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. And there you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Again, it's acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also like our site on Facebook where you can follow all of the movie and TV news that Nico reports on during the week, as well as the rest of our podcast members. And also, you can stay updated on our podcast episode releases. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter, or join our circle on Google+. Also, as we mentioned earlier, you can leave a voicemail sharing your thoughts on any of the shows we cover, or suggestions on odd shows you'd like to, to cover. And what number can you call to do that? 773-809-3363. Yes. So call us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from some different people from week to week. Uh, we love Wu's voicemail. But we'd like to hear from some of the other people out there as well. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel, which has all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV show episodes, as well as previews for upcoming movies, including Guardians of the Galaxy, which will soon be posted on our site. And we also have trailers for X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, and a whole lot more. So if you're excited for summer movies, check out our YouTube channel for all those previews. Also, we have recently set up an app with Stitcher Radio, which is available by visiting our website and clicking any of the links for that. So it's a free app, and we're hoping that that app will be much more successful in helping out ATA compared to the podcast box and Android apps, which aren't selling that great right now. So for an easier app to use, got easier access on our phone, you can download our Stitcher app. Also, we still have the podcast box, which will let you stay in contact with our podcast, can listen to our episodes on your iPad or iPhone. Can also, if you're on an Android or Windows device, we have our Android app, which will let you listen to our podcast episodes. Can that is available on the Amazon Marketplace. 
So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, Kennedy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Restek. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. And remember, Game of Thrones fans, beware, change is coming. And my time was running wild A million dead-end streets And every time I thought I got it made It seemed the taste was not so sweet So I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse How the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test. Ch-ch-ch-changes. Turn and face the strange. changes Don't wanna be a richer man. Turn and face the strange. changes It's gonna have to be a different man. Now may change me. To grow up out of it Now return to our regularly scheduled program.